Now, why do we say love is a garden? Well, after all, the whole love story of the human race began in the garden. Their love was at its peak, and then it went into decline. And then finally, love was reaffirmed again in the garden. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Unadulterated Theology, where today I'd like to piggyback a conversation from my last episode, Chris Hedges on Pornography, where specifically at the beginning of that episode, I just mentioned how I was going to start this procedure of examining specific individuals' sort of perspectives or arguments um, against pornography, which of course is not appropriate to use that language against, um, as if I'm indicating this to be more polemic as it really is. Rather, it's just that these are certain individuals who, for the most part, are not religious or spiritually inclined, but are actually uh, unbelievers, even some agnostics in some vague sense, who do take up positions uh, against porn, which don't support views that are similar to my own. So, given that I was going to do that specific procedure and look at these individuals and how they explicate their view of the industry, I'm going to go to more broad considerations and kind of put on the shoes, if you will, of those who take up these sort of anti-pornography and anti-sex work criticism, given that their analysis of the problem not only has to do with these sort of contradictions and the sort of problems that take place in the industry itself, but some more broad sort of cultural considerations by looking at literature, by looking at audiovisual media, and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I suppose moving forward with some general considerations... Uh, at the end of World War One, there was a significant sort of cultural, literary, and artistic shift in the attitudes of gender and sexuality that was particularly taking place amongst the youth uh, of America. Now, authors of the period like F. Scott Fitzgerald and Eugene O'Neill drew heavily on the sort of, to use a fun phrase, Dionysian exploration of experimentation, overconsumption, and excess. So I think the fascination at the time with psychoanalysis, dream imagery, and the unhealthy repression of sexual appetites, if you will, led to a transition of values. Um, and it, there was an emphasis on the exploration of sexual desire and the unfettering pursuit of freedom from sexual guilt. Now, according to Charles Glicksberg's The Sexual Revolution in Modern America, which he wrote in 1971, he says, quote, Semantically and, and psychologically, the opposite of suppression was taken to mean uninhibited sexual repression. Literates like Sherwood Anderson, who died in 1941, would be one of the first American novelists to introduce psychoanalytic jargon into the common American language with popular novels like Winsburg, Ohio, which he wrote in 1916. Um, drawing on sort of the inner psychological life of small-town inhabitants. Although the protagonists of these s short stories are comprised of small-town individuals, they nonetheless express their loneliness and limitations in terms of Freudian psychoanalysis, which kind of permeated a lot of popular culture at the time. Further on, this kind of sexual ethic has persisted in sometimes explosive ways throughout the 20th century not only in literature, but eventually toward other outlets such as pornographic films, the phone sex boom of the 1980s, the introduction of the internet in the 1990s, and finally, high-speed internet at your fingertips in the mid-2000s. Now, what are some of the ways in which this, if you will, kind of unbounded sexual desire, or this growing kind of sexual ethic, I should say, can be seen as damaging, if that can be an appropriate word? 
Was the sexual revolution a kind of sexual discovery? Now, again, referring to these more general kind of considerations for arguments against pornography, I like to move into the kind of psychological side of pornography, which include the kind of biological details associated with anti-porn arguments. Now, Gary Wilson is the founder of Your Brain on Porn, an organization built on the idea that people don't need to suffer needlessly because they lack critical information for improving their circumstances themselves. Now, Wilson has published two peer-reviewed papers, such as Is Internet Pornography Causing Sexual Dysfunctions? and Eliminate Chronic Internet Pornography Use to Reveal Its Effects. Now, his more popular TED Talk, The Great Porn Experiment, has attracted over some 10 million views, along with his popular little book, along with his popular little book, excuse me, Your Brain on Porn, which he wrote in 2015. Now, to better explain the essence of the talk, Wilson and his article, Porn, Novelty, and the Coolidge Effect, which he wrote in 2011, explains that the Coolidge Effect is an ancient biological program that can override your sluggish contentment after orgasm if there are new mates begging to be fertilized. Without it, there would be no internet porn. This neurological mechanism perceives each new erotic possibility, including those on your screen, as a valuable genetic opportunity and jolts you into action with potent neurochemicals. Now, the Coolidge effect gets its name from U.S. President Calvin Coolidge. <clears throat> Excuse me. The president and his wife, Grace, were touring a farm one time, and Coolidge was preoccupied with something else. The farm proudly showed Grace a rooster that could mate with hens all day long, day after day. Grace then suggested that the farmer tell her husband this. Upon being told about the rooster, Mr. Coolidge replied, With the same hen? No, sir, replied the farmer. Tell Miss Coolidge that, retorted the president. The Coolidge effect is essentially the novelty that drives internet porn consumption. To have an example of what exactly this is, suppose an experiment. What happens when you drop a male rat into a cage with a receptive female rat. Well, first, you see a frenzy of copulation. Then, progressively, the male tires of that particular female. Even if she wants more, he has had enough. However, repla replace the original female with a fresh one, and the male immediately revives and gallantly struggles to fertilize her. You can repeat this process with fresh females until he is completely wiped out. However, this similar effect has been observed in females as well. The rat can do this because of the release of the neurochemical dopamine in his brain. According to William Struthers, quote, Dopamine is the neurotransmitter involved in the mesolimbic system that coordinates all natural reinforcing behaviors, eating, drinking, sex, and etc. It is also the primary neurotransmitter that most addictive drugs are known to release. Sexual cues trigger the release of dopamine in the nucleus Cumbens, which is also sensitive to testosterone. Now, according to Psychology Today, dopamine helps regulate movement and emotional responses, and it enables us not only to see rewards, but to take action to move toward them. Hence, Parkinson's disease is an, is an example of this, whereby a lack of dopamine production restricts bodily movement. Uh, Marina Robinson and Gary Wilson's article, Cupid's Poison Arrow, which was written in 2010, observes the effects of the production of dopamine in relation to our body's response to regulative stimuli such as food and sex. They write, quote, Most addiction research focuses on substance abuse, not addiction to natural reinforcers. 
it reveals that only a minority of us are genetically susceptible to substance abuse due to low dopamine receptors in different regions of the brain's reward circuitry. So are the rest of us safe from addiction? When it comes to substance abuse, perhaps yes. When it comes to unrestricted access to super stimulating natural reinforcers, the answer may be no, although certainly not everyone gets hooked. The reason hyper-stimulating versions of food and sex can hook us, even if we're not otherwise susceptible to addiction, is that our reward circuitry evolved to drive us toward food and sex, not drugs. Now, to be clear, dopamine is a neurotransmitter that quite literally bolsters or amps up a part of the brain known as the reward circuitry. Aside from experiencing pleasure and cravings, it is in this very center where addictions are created. There are natural reinforcers, as they mentioned in their article, such as food, sex, and even love, finding a mate attractive, and etc., that cause the release of dopamine in this part of the brain, which is to be contrasted with addictive chemicals, such as cocaine, that also give off bursts of dopamine. And another thing, dopamine is not released when you have achieved pleasure or some craving, but is rather released upon seeking for said pleasure. Hence, dopamine has nothing to do with the pleasure itself, but with anticipation. This system is very powerful in its wanting, seeking, and pursuing. According to one psychologist, seeking is more likely to keep us alive than sitting around in a satisfied stupor. Now, dopamine surges for novelty. We set our hopes on the latest technology, the newest film, the hottest cars, and so on. And these sorts of novelty experiences carry over into our private sexual lives as well. Now, according to one Australian research experiment, um, which was conducted in the um, year 2000, the same erotic film was showed repeatedly to test subjects with signs of penis circumference and subjective arousal gradually decreasing. Upon the 18th viewing of the same film, researchers changed to a new erotica on the 19th and 20th viewing, with a new refreshed spike in penile circumference and subjective arousal. Now, according to the abstract of that paper, quote, this pattern of results indicates that with repeated presentation, an erotic stimulus is experienced not only as less sexually arousing, but also as less appetitive and absorbing. Now, I suppose some more general reflections moving here forward. The belief that pornography is harmful, probably something has to do with the sort of unspoken, maybe unnoticed and ignored sort of psychological reality of its harmful effects. Not just on oneself, um, porn-induced erectile dysfunction, increase in anxiety and depression among frequent users of pornography, but also on one's relationships as well, more generally. Um, over-consumption, overconsumption and overstimulation can impair pair bonding, or falling in love as we may call it, among sexual partners. According to one study, scientists injected high levels of amphetamine, which is a nervous system stimulant, into pair bonding animals that usually partook in monogamous uh, sexual relationships. After the jolt in amphetamine, these animals ceased their preference for a single partner and sought other mates. This kind of artificial stimulation hijacks their bonding machinery where long-lasting bonds uh, are intended to be present. A similar study was done in 2007 to show that this kind of behavior exists in humans as well, whereby prolonged exposure to pictures of sexy female images caused men to devalue their current real-life partner. Not only does he rate his partner lower in attraction, but also in emotional stability and even intelligence as well. 
and partners of both sexes partaking in pornographic consumption reported a decrease in satisfaction amongst each other, including a change in perspective on their partner's appearance, sexual curiosity, and performance. Now, in this podcast, I'm sort of making a differentiation between two unique sort of perspectives on pornography, as, as far as the anti-porn criticisms go. There is the sort of psychological side, we can call it, or the empirical side, as well as the conceptual side. Now, this distinction acts as the spheres of influence pornography partakes on the observer or um, the participant. So, in the usual scheme of criticizing pornography, they, they will generally fall into these two categories. The psychological sphere contains all the data which might relate to the way pornography immediately or chronologically affects an individual's behavior, cognitive capacities, sexual life, or what have you. In other words, it's precisely the instantiable ways in which pornography is seen as harmful in human beings. Now, the conceptual sphere is, I take it, the other side of the coin. The conceptual sphere contains a different kind of data, a rational data, if you will, as opposed to merely scientific or empirical data. The conceptual sphere addresses the subtle, nuanced, and permeative ways in which pornography has infiltrated culture and the public consciousness, if you will. And this is achieved typically by way of argument, extending censorship provisions further and further into moral oblivion under the scheme of constitutional free speech. The moral oblivion, it could perhaps be stated in one way, uh, as one author says, pornography involves an abstraction of human intercourse in which the self is reduced to its formal elements. In its most basic form, these elements are represented by the probe and the fringed hole, the twin signs of female and male in graffiti, the biological symbols scrawled on the subway poster and urinal wall, the simplest expression of stark and eradicable sexual differentiation, a universal pictorial of lust, or rather, a language we accept as universal. Since it always has been so, we conclude that it must always remain so. And this is one such popular view, um, actually expressed here by a non-Christian, shared by a multitude of feminists on diverse parts of the political as well as philosophical spectrum. One unfortunate consequence of this narrative is to view women as not being metaphysically inferior to men, but instead socio-politically inferior, perhaps even worse, sexually violently enslaved to men in circumstances of sexual exploitation and fantasization. <laughs> I've argued for several years now that we can utilize some important insight from the feminist critique of pornography. For example, the suggestion that pornography is really an extension of, quote, magical realism. That is, supplementing details of fantasy or fiction and myth into real-world scenarios. Magical realism is a kind of literary or artistic device meant to stretch the imagination beyond what reality readily offers. Now, pornography, then, is a kind of art, as it's been said, um, visual and sensual, which best addresses these promiscuous, imaginative scenarios found within the recesses of man's desire. Pornography is indeed a manipulative art, hijacking and quite literally hardwiring the mental capacities men 
naturally were endowed with by their creator. And I'm speaking of men more generally, referring to human beings, so this is men and women. Angela Carter once spoke of how this kind of art affects readers of pornographic literature. She says, quote, The one-to-one relation of the reader with the book is never more apparent than in the reading of a pornographic novel, since it is virtually impossible to forget oneself in relation to the text. In pornographic literature, the text has a gap left in it on purpose so that the reader may, in imagination, step inside it. But the activity the text describes into which the reader enters is not a whole world into which the reader is absorbed and, as they say, taken out of himself. It is one basic activity extracted from the world in its totality in such a way that the text constantly reminds the reader of his own troubling self, his own reality, and the limitations of that reality since however much he wants to have sex with the willing women or men in his story. He cannot do so, but must be content with some sort or some form of substitute activity. She then concludes that pornography has no aesthetic value whatsoever. Despite this being relevant to participants in textual pornography, I think the same sort of criticism applies even more to technologically advanced formats of pornography. Even in visual formats, Philip Roth I think nicely has put it, quote, it's a representation, ordinary pornography. It's a fallen art form. It's not just make-believe. It's patently insincere. You want the girl in the film, but you're not jealous of whoever's having sex with her because he becomes your surrogate. Quite amazing, but that's the power of fallen art. He's a stand-in, there in your service. So I think then this sort of program of anti-pornography criticism might have something to say that regarding the popular slogan that pornography is a lie, it probably refers to the subtle sort of unannounced, if you will, commodization of bodies, the abstraction of persons into glorified, lubricated bodies fixed towards one function, sex. And this commodization is the religion of sexuality today. Souls sacrificing themselves on the altar of novelty and pleasure. They can offer nothing other than their bodies for atonement. And unlike their meek counterparts, they are totally blemished. Hence, the stench of their offering is pleasant, not to the Lord, but now to the devil himself, to the demonic, which seems to be the reward of his reapings. Pornography then can be understood as the bastardization of the human person, to put it forcefully and succinctly. I think the lie of constitutional protection even has intruded well-intentioned families all across America and Europe especially. Censorship is employed towards children by their parents only at the admission that they are only delaying an inevitable part of their lives. Sex is everywhere. Since this has always been so, so it must always remain so. I think Christians, parents, and young people especially, need to get on board with how serious this conversation is, no matter what position you may take on this issue. If there are harms to pornography, all the more serious attention that we should apply to this area. Not only how this affects the general sort of sexual structure in our relational lives, but how pornography intimately affects how our desires are organized, how we respond to novelty and generally. And I pray that we find urgency and passion in this area, again, 
independent of what one feels on this issue. God bless you. May God keep you. And have a nice day.